Well, good morning. Good to see all of you in this gorgeous church building. Um, not, not every church plant gets one of these, you know, so, um, so there you go. Uh, I planted a church in a dirty bar, um, and it, it, it wasn't near as pretty as this, so this is great. We have sunshine, and it's, this is incredible. All right, so yeah, here we go. Reckless love of God. I, uh, I wrote a book on, called The Reckless Love of God, and it's about experiencing the personal, passionate heart of the gospel. And so your pastors, Drew and Ryan, asked me if I'd come up and share some of that with you. And so, um, yeah, I live in Atlanta, Georgia right now, and kind of on a, a, a sabbatical from, from ministry. I've served as a pastor in various contexts in different places uh, around our country. And um, yeah, finishing school, doing some more writing, etc. So that's kind of us. My wife's with us today, and so it's really cool to be able to come across the country and have her here uh, in Seattle this morning, too. So, um, yeah, go to Luke chapter 15 if you have your Bible. Luke chapter 15 will be there. And, um, yeah, it's probably the best chapter in the Bible. So there's a lot of good ones, and this one's probably the best one. And so I figured I'd just go with the best one. So, um yeah, and I, gosh, I mean, seriously, I know it's 10 a.m., so just get with it. All right, uh, how long has it been since you uh, really thought about, especially if you're a Christian this morning, um, how long has it been since you thought about God loving you? Like, like really, when was the last time you really thought about that? Not just loving the world out there or loving the church, capital C, in general, or even the person sitting right beside you, or a pastor or something, but when was the last time you thought about God loving you as a person, as an individual, with your own story, your own unique fingerprints, your own history, your own desires, with all your wins, with all your losses, with all the ups and downs and wrong turns and right turns, the successes and the failures, when was the last time you thought about God loving you? As a Christian, um, having had the opportunity to travel around the world a good bit, like a lot of you, um, it's not the most uncommon thing to bump into another Christian and um, not have the love of God be the very center of their being. That is, it's easy to be, well, it's not the easiest thing to become a Christian, but it's easy to believe that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, is elementary. Just simple children's theology, you know, because once you get Jesus loves me, this I know, the Bible tells me so, then you got to get on to the heavy lifting of real theology. you got to figure out your eschatology and your creation theology. you got to figure out how the world's going to end. And, you know, you gotta, you got to figure all that stuff out. And then you got to be able to explain the intricacies of the Trinity, and you got to be able to articulate how the resurrection works. And then you also got to be able to tell everybody how every single word in this book has been inspired by the Holy Spirit, who also somehow indwells you. Yeah, you got to move on to all that hard stuff, the Jesus loves me stuff. you got that when you you were a kid. So now let's do the heavy lifting, the real, you know, tough stuff, theology. You ever been there? Like, yeah, yeah, I actually, yeah. Like, and I kind of stopped liking Jesus a little bit when I got into all that because it gets overwhelming. 
The reality is this, is all of that stuff that passes for the deep end and theological thinking, it's no deeper than Jesus loving you. In fact, Jesus loves me this, I know the Bible tells me so, is the deep end of the theological swimming pool. When you say Jesus, that's the incarnate Son of God. When you talk about love, and not just any love, like the generic kind of love that you see at Valentine's Day, but real Bible love, well, that's, that's pretty big. Jesus loves me as a person. Yeah, that's, that's massive. And on it goes, we're talking about some really, really profound things. In, uh, I, I grew up in Woodstock, Georgia, and one of my, my, my best friends, I had two, two really good buddies, Kyle and Haley, and, um, and we grew up going to birthday parties and all of our, all, all of our play dates were together from preschool all the way through high school. Um, Kyle and Haley were my friends. And do you remember your first, like, sixth grade dance? Remember? I sure you do. You're like, yeah, don't, please don't talk about it. It's awkward. Yeah. Okay. So I remember my sixth grade dance and I was like, I don't know who to take other than Haley because it's Haley. Like, we, it's just Haley. And this is a safe go because it's Haley. I've known Haley my whole life. So I was like, Haley, let's go to the, the dance. And she's like, okay. And we get in uh, my mom's van and I give her a corsage. And she just kind of looks at me like, this is, like, we play baseball together. She was like a total tomboy. And she's like, all right. So she puts it on, and it's just this, it's just really awkward. We ride in the van to our elementary school. We get out at the elementary school. We go in the cafeteria that smells only like an elementary school cafeteria smells. And the music goes, and the place is packed. And all the guys are on this side of the room. All the girls are on this side of the room. It's that awkward moment. And we're supposed to be doing our best Michael Jackson moves. And we just kind of stood across the room. Like really awkwardly. And it's only that kind of feeling that accompanies like pre-adolescence. <laughs> so, <laughs> And we stand there. And I remember my friend Erica came over and was like, hey, Haley wants to dance. I was like, I, I'm, I'm not going to dance with my friend. I feel like when I talk to Christians about the love of God, the sixth grade dance metaphor seems to apply. It's easy to stand across the room feeling awkward not making eye contact with the God who really wants to be with you. You see, letting yourself be loved by God is the bravest thing you'll ever do. It takes real courage, Christian, to let God see you as a complete mess and love you as you are. With no strings attached, with no clean your act up, before I'll take care of you in the mix. The gospel is a complete scandal. 
That's why Paul even calls it foolishness. Because you have to be a complete fool to think that Jesus not only loves you, but likes you this morning. You have to be a fool to wake up this morning thinking that Zephaniah 3, 17 was true about you this morning. That God sang over you with loud songs and singing and rejoicing and excitement. Do you know that's true about you? It is. And even if you fall asleep in church this morning, it's still true. So, that being said, Luke 15, it's a pretty amazing chapter of the Bible. Seriously, it's really amazing. Listen to this. First two verses says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. That is Jesus. And um, you got to understand, when we say sinners and St. Luke says sinners, we, we got, there's kind of a, a difference there. When we say sinners, we kind of can say it in a very generic sense. Like, yeah, we know we're all sinners. When Luke is talking about it, this is like juxtaposing the not good enough, the bad guys, the rebels, the unclean, the outcasts, the ones who break commandments. The sinners are all drawing near to Jesus to hear him. Now, I don't know what your impression of Jesus might be, but he, apparently when he walked the earth, the worst among us, were attracted to him, that there was a radiance about him, there was a joy about him, that he wasn't known for just walking around, beating people up, reminding them that they're just a bunch of screw-ups. Maybe he was quite attractive. They want to hear him. They're close to him. And the Pharisees, which means religious separatists, and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives or warmly welcomes sinners and eats with them he warmly welcomed the outcast the no good the throwaway the addict the cheater the failure the repeat offender and he warmly welcomes them and he eats with them that is when the bible uses this word that he eats with them that's table fellowship in the first century, and that's massive because you can't eat with those kinds of people. They're unclean. But Jesus is found eating meals with them, enjoying being with them, and they are found enjoying him, and the religious purists, the separatists, just can't stand it, and they're grumbling amongst themselves. And then Jesus, this is funny what he says, Jesus decides to give like the most passive-aggressive rebuke in the history of the world. He's like, I see that you guys are grumbling. Hey, guys, I have a story I'd like to tell you. You guys all want to hear a story? <laughs> like, like this is, is Jesus' way of going after the religious crowd that makes the sinners feel rotten, like they don't belong. You know religious people excel in keeping checks and balances and keeping the bad guys over here and the good guys over here They've nominated themselves as cops. And the reality is, is that God hasn't asked them to do any of that. So Jesus gives them this parable. And it says this. I'll just read the first two and then we'll, we'll walk through the last one. Um, it just says, 
in verse uh, 3. So he told this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does he, not, uh, uh, does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And look what happens when the, the, the shepherd finds a sheep. When he found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and with his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep. That was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. When you read this chapter, you should mark words like rejoice, celebrate, joy. Yeah, because if it's, I mean, if God's repeating himself in the Bible, it's important. So watch. The next parable. This is my new favorite parable, I think. Um, or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, I've found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Like, when you're reading this, Christian, you were the coin in the couch cushion. That's a, That's you. And you're the coin that's like tucked away. And God comes sweeping the house, turning everything over. I will not sleep until I find my coin. And when he finds the coin, he doesn't sit around and go, God, I lose it. Like, don't you ever go away. Like, no, he throws a party. Calling people together going, let's rejoice. Something was lost and now it's found. And it's not just something. It's someone. It was you. You were the coin that slipped away. And then he says this parable, and you all know it. It's the prodigal son. And it's really the prodigal sons, because they're both lost. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. All right. If you go to your parents and ask for your inheritance before they're dead, that's wrong. And that's not even just in the ancient Near Eastern context. We can get that pretty clear today. Like, It's communicating, I don't want you, I want your stuff. You don't matter to me, you're dead to me, just give me what I got coming to me. Wow. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So, so he packs his bags. His father watches him do all of this. And he heads out to a far off country. I'm getting away from my dad. I'm getting away from his rules. I'm getting away from my other brother. I'm getting out of here. I've got an agenda, and I'm going to go do what I want to do. Do you know what reckless living looks like, or do we have to go into that? We're in Seattle, so um, there's a lot. We, it's not like the hardest thing. Like, I, you know, I don't know. I just sit in church all day every day. I don't know what reckless living looks like. I bet you do. It's probably why you're in church today. Like, I do. I'm repenting. Like, help me. Like, all right, so... He goes and he squanders his life in reckless living. And later on in the parable, you find out he's with prostitutes and he just parties everything away. He absolutely wastes his life. 
Henry Nouwen wrote a book that talks about this parable. He's, a, he's an old priest. And he said uh, he was commenting on Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son. And it's a picture of the son that's like got his head laid in the father's lap. He comes home and he's a complete mess. And in talking about this particular passage, Henry said, you know, we're the prodigal son every time we look in places for unconditional love outside the arms of the father. So he goes and he wastes his life thinking this will do it. I don't need my dad. I need whatever I can find under the sun. And this isn't even the saddest part of the story. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So you know all the Pharisees that are listening to this at this point, they're like, "Uh uh-huh. Yep, famine. Now he's broke. You reap what you sow. Good. Good. They love this part. They all amen Jesus. Because he's not keeping the rules. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And all the religious separatists are like, wow, pigs. This story is getting better and better. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. And all the Pharisees said, amen. They're like, this is great. Serves that sucker right. He wrote his father off. He's wasted everything. He, good for good. This is a great story. And Jesus is like, well, I, there's more. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I sinned against heaven and before you. That part is amazing. But he's still completely broken. Here's the saddest line in the the whole story. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You see, everybody wants to work for God. Have you come to a place in your life where you realize that God is not your employer? That if you don't measure up, he's going to withhold your paycheck? That you're always on thin ice? That if you show up late to a meeting, or God forbid, fall asleep at your desk, you're out? Do you know that that couldn't be further from the truth of the gospel today? That he's not hiring employees, but he's adopting children? So the son wants to repent and still be hired. He's going to ask his father for the impossible. Treat me like a servant. How can the father do that? He's his father. I counted your ten fingers and ten toes. You're my son. I can't treat you like an employee. We have a history together. It's amazing. And so here's 
Here's the, here's the greatest verse in the Bible. I love this. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So the father, you've all, you get the idea. The father is there waiting, I guess, in the yard or on the porch, watching down the road, so to speak. He sees his son coming. He sees him come up over the hill and the father does not get full of rage like that stupid kid of mine. But he's filled with compassion. And like in some of your Bibles, there'll be like a little a star or a footnote or a number. Like, and you go down there right next to that word compassion. And it says something like uh, splachna, meaning kidneys or guts or bowels. And you're like, I, you lost me there. What's that about? Here's what it means. For us as Westerners, we tend to think of all our emotions bursting out of our heart. But in the Eastern world, all your emotions come from your guts. And you're like, that actually is a little more accurate. When they talk about their emotions, they're talking about their guts. Splachna, splachnitzomai is where we get that word compassion, meaning when the father sees the deadbeat son, his gut wrenched in unconditional, scandalous love. That the father's feeling something, and he jumps up and he runs to his son. What do you think the son thinks when he sees his dad running toward him? Like, oh no. But the son, he plows over his son. You know that experience you get when you've been away from your friends for a long time? And they get off the plane, and there's this, I've missed you so much moment where you like jump over the, the, the security thing, and you're like, you're like, don't do that. All right, especially just don't. Um, but plowed over an unbelievable embrace, welcome. And the, and the way the Greek literally translates right here, if you have a children's Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible actually translates it best. It says the father could not stop kissing him. Just overwhelmed to be with his son. Did you know that's how God feels about you on your worst day? When you're a total mess, when you're angry at God, when the bills aren't paid, when the relationships are completely in the gutter, where nothing makes any sense, and you're basically kind of a functional atheist at that point, and you're just a, a mess, do you know that God deeply feels for you, that he deeply, deeply loves you? He loves you so much that he gave his only son. To be with you. Did you know God can't stomach the idea of heaven without you? Like, that's ridiculous. He could get on just fine. Apparently, he didn't. And he went to unfathomable depths to get you and keep you and never let you go. Do you know that no matter what happens this week, you are safe in the arms of God? No matter what happens, you are safe with your father. And then, of course, the son still tries to get his I'm sorry speech out. 
The son said, Father, I sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he, just before he gets to the so hire me part, the father cuts him off. And this is what it says. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The kid's looking pretty terrible. He shows up with no shoes. Like he's just, he's in bad shape. I mean, it's bad when you go home from partying with no clothes. He's like, I, I smell like booze and I have no clothes. I mean, the kid shows up basically naked. He's like, dress him quick. <laughs> And bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this son of, uh, this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found and they began to celebrate. Look how crazy the father is. The son, sure, it can be called the prodigal son, but the one who's really out of line in the story is the father. It's easy to go mess your life up and get hammered. The crazy part of the story is not the rebel. The crazy part is the father's love and embrace. Saying, kill the fattened calf. Pour the best wine. The kid's probably thinking at this moment, I've, I've partied enough. How are we possibly partying now? And they began to celebrate. He's going, he was dead. He was lost. He was gone. He was the sheep that got away. He was the coin in the couch. He's here. And they began to celebrate. Do you know that this is the content of the gospel? Is a gut-busting, joyous celebration that the people of God ought to be known for unbelievable joy, knowing that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not one thing. Not death. Not a sword. Not famine. Not nakedness. Not peril. Not your own sin. Not the sin that's been done against you. Nothing can separate you from his great love. Absolutely nothing. And so that's what Christians have latched onto for 2,000 years. That God isn't abandoning us. That Jesus has not left us as orphans. And that the Holy Spirit has come to fill, empower, comfort, lead, guide, and protect his people. And that your salvation is secure. This is great news. That's why we call it good news. This is awesome. So this is, this is it. This, so that's, that's for the prodigal son. Now look at this. There's, there's the other part. Like what about the big brother? The Pharisees part. He's like, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So my friend Matt says it this way. He said, if, to, to show up at a party and hear music is one thing. But if you hear dancing, they're really going for it. <laughs> I can hear them dancing. It's like, it's like Louisiana, like river dancing or something. I don't know. That's really weird. All right, anyway. They hear, he hears dancing. He comes upon a party. Why are we having a party? And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother's come. And your father he killed the fatted calf because he received him back safe and sound. That word receives right there, warmly well. He welcomed him back. He's safe and sound. Great news, huh? I'm a religious guy. Here we go. But he was angry and refused to go in. You see, it's one thing for God to love you but there's nothing that quite exposes our self-righteousness quite like when Jesus loves one of our enemies. You know? So he brings all that to the surface. 
It's kind of like Jonah. Remember how the book of Jonah ends? All the Ninevites <laughs> repent. And the book of Jonah, what does Jonah do? He's not excited, was he? He goes, he sits under a tree, pouts, starts breathing down curses, saying, I should die. I should just give up and die. This is ridiculous. I knew you were going to save everybody. This sucks. I have to spend heaven with all my enemies. There's that lurks in our hearts too. It's not just the lost little brother. The big brother's lost too. And look what the father does for him. His father came out and entreated him. Saying, come, come party. What are you doing out here pouting? Is it so bad that I'm throwing a party right now? And he answered his father, look, these many years I served you. I never disobeyed your command. You never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. I kept all the rules. But when this son of yours, notice he doesn't call him my, my little brother, this son of yours, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me. All that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother, reminds him, your brother, he was dead and he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. And then Jesus is like, and that's the story. Like, so what happened with the big brother? Well, that's how parables work, is that you're supposed to hear it and then enter it and look at your own life. Am I the little brother? Am I the big brother? You see, the older brother proves you can be lost and still be sitting at home. Does that make sense? That you can be lost in religion just as bad as you can be lost in rebellion. And the one that the story is all about is the great father that loves to party, that's full of compassion, that wants his boys around him. You see, that's what you get to look forward to as a Christian. In heaven, you will see religious people who found Jesus and repented of their religion. And you will see rebels who found Jesus and repented of their rebellion. And there will be the father with the fatted calf, the best wine, the ring, the robes, everything. Forever. That's really good news. That's all I have to say to you today. He loves you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for forgiveness of sin. I pray for uh, my brothers and sisters here today, for, for some that may be walking in rebellion against you. Would you give them a new heart? Not to go and apply for a job, but to freely accept your pardon, your justification, your adoption as a son or a daughter into your family. Give us repentance. In fact, you let your kindness lead us to repentance. And God, I pray for my, my friends that might just be lost in religion. Would you help create new hearts in them as well? 
put yourself on display in our lives and in our church. Thank you for Redemption Church. Thank you for what you're doing here. We do pray that you would continue to make yourself known in the city of Seattle. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.